Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. Our border is a disaster. Crime infests our cities. The federal government makes it harder for families to make ends meet, and the president flounders. But decline is a choice. Success is attainable, and freedom is worth fighting for. Writing that would have been great if that's how he had started the conversation on Twitter. If Twitter had worked in a way that you had. Everything working the way it was supposed to. My gosh, that would have been a dream come true. But that's not what you got. While that was the opening of his uh, video, the opening of his um, of his time and uh, uh, there on uh, Twitter, it sounded a little more like this. No, that's not the right sound. I was going for the AOL Instant Messenger connecting sound. Missed it by that much. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. It's good to be with you. The last thing it sounded like was a cash register. Man, it was a mess. Now, we'll get into whether or not the mess matters. But you can't deny that if you're going to launch on Twitter and Twitter can't handle the load of people, the argument of, well, you had so many people interested, doesn't fly. You know who would have put forth that argument? Donald Trump. Argument doesn't work. They already hate Elon Musk. And they're like, oh, look, his Twitter doesn't even work. (laughs) We'll get into that in a second because there's a whole story here that the real anger is with Elon Musk and not with Ron DeSantis. But certainly, as you're rolling something out, you want it to roll out smooth. You want everything to be great. You don't want to have a 20-minute delay before you can engage a conversation with the people. If you were to follow news media, that's all they talk about. If you follow those people on CNN and MSNBC, all they will talk about is that, oh my gosh, this was terrible. Oh my gosh, uh, this was, was embarrassing. This was just the worst rollout ever. It was so amateurish. Guys, none of that matters. I'm going to say that again for the people in the cheap seats. None of that matters. It doesn't matter. Like when Jennifer Palmieri, who used to run comms for the White House, says this. Abomination, but, um, and and just so much hubris all around from DeSantis, from Musk, like, you know, oh, by the way, 700,000 people is not that much. Like Twitter should be able to handle 700,000 people. Because Jennifer Palmieri knows all about technology and what Twitter should be able to handle. I guess she can, you know, send people to space and whatnot, too. She can create electric cars. Who are you going to trust as your technologist? 
the former comms director for the White House or Elon Musk? I rest my case. But everyone's got a position. Everyone's got it. Oh, they should have handled this. Oh, they should have handled that. What they do not engage is that after the tech issues, which are real, don't deny them, it stinks. You want to have a smooth rollout. It wasn't smooth. That's what happened. After that took place, Ron DeSantis engaged, DeSantis engaged in an hour of policy talk. And you will notice that CNN and MSNBC and the New York Times and the Washington Post, none of them will talk about it. They'll only talk about, oh, Twitter didn't work. <laughs> Trump is putting out jokes about it. Joe Biden is putting out jokes about it. Twitter couldn't handle 700,000 people. Joe Biden can't ha figure out how to walk off a stage. But his team is going to mock, please. You look as pathetic as he does walking down the street. Everybody knows that he's too old. And everybody knows that the Democratic Party doesn't care how old or infirm or absolutely demented you are. They keep you in place because power matters more than people. Joe Biden, John Fetterman, Dianne Feinstein. That's the trifecta, people. My work here is done. DeSantis engaged in a conversation on multiple fronts about policy. Now I know for the great number of people, policy ain't sexy know-how. But let's talk uh, about Ron DeSantis talking about the agency class. But no, so um, Governor DeSantis, my question to you is, you know, you served here in Congress for six years with me and um, why is it that Congress is so feckless at reining in these government agencies? And, and what do you think we need to do? And if you were president, what, what would you urge Congress or what bills would you like to see and sign to rein in this, uh, you know, sort of overreach of government bureaucracy? Well, first, I think there's a lot that the executive branch can do. And I, all I will say when it comes to these agencies, we'll put we'll we'll go into this a little bit more as the campaign goes on. But buckle up when I get in there, because the, the status quo is not acceptable. Um, and we are going to make sure that we reconstitutionalize this government. And these agencies are totally out of control. There's no accountability. And we are going to bring that in a very big way. Now, part of the reason it's gotten so bad power has been consolidated and effectively a fourth branch of government because Congress hasn't used its two main powers that it has under the Constitution. First, the power of the purse. If an agency is gauging in conduct that is outside the realm of what is legal or you think it's not good for the public interest, then you can remove the funding for those for those operations. Um, there's nothing that they're not entitled to get the same level of funding every year. And yet Congress runs the government on autopilot, either continuing resolutions or massive omnibus spending bills. So these agencies are all bulletproof. They know that they're going to end up getting uh, something similar or more every single year. Uh, and it creates an incentive for them to, to abuse their power. The other thing you, you can do is actually legislate so you're not delegating to the bureaucracy key issues regarding how to enforce federal law. You should define what you want. All they should be doing is implementing. Instead, 
Congress will basically give an invitation for the bureaucracy to make really important substantive decisions. And so Congress may never vote on something and the bureaucracy will cite a law from 20 years ago and do things that are going to transform our society or our country. That is not the way the founding fathers drew up the Constitution. So would you sign the Reins Act? We passed it out of judiciary today. Oh, yeah. No, you of want course. To- yeah, that's a no brainer. Um, that would, I think, be a great check. Uh, for that. I also think that we're going to have a good chance uh, to see some of the Chevron deference uh, really curtailed or maybe even eliminated uh, based on the U.S. Supreme Court's uh, upcoming jurisprudence. And I think that's another reason why the bureaucracy has become so powerful, because courts have basically been told they can pretty much do what they want and, and courts are supposed to just defer. I don't think that that's actually correct. I think the courts Uh, They have to make a judgment about what does the law actually say, and you can't just defer to quote-unquote experts in the bureaucracy. Because they're not necessarily experts. They're there because they're ideologically aligned with the people in charge. But that was three minutes of policy. Is no one at CNN or MSNBC going to discuss this? A conversation of Chevron deference? A conversation about the out-of-control agency class? Isn't that stuff that we should want to hear Isn't that the policy stuff that matters? Oh, Ron DeSantis, he just wants to ban books and doesn't want to teach black history. The amount that the leftist press hates you is remarkable. And you've heard me me say this a lot over the last few days because I've been discussing the fact that it is indeed a war. It's not that we want it to be. It is. And there's a question of how one fights. So let's start with how one fights in this conversation. There was a technical snafu with the Twitter spaces where Ron DeSantis was announcing his candidacy. They'd put the video out. They were going to go on Twitter. And then they went on Fox, by the way. So they covered it in every way. And yes, it didn't work for the first 20 minutes. That is all the low-rent people like Mika Brzezinski and The View and Joy Reid and and Anderson Cooper are going to talk about. We have an option. We can either say, well, that's the narrative, or we could say, hey, is anybody going to talk about the policy issues here? Now, you say to me, Tony, that is a boring, droll conversation that nobody's into. All right, how about we change it up? Ron DeSantis discussed policy in an open forum for two hours. Let's see Joe Biden, that old senile man, do that. And don't stop. If the Biden family loved him, they wouldn't let him run. The guy is clearly incapable. Same thing with the Fetterman family, same thing with the Feinstein family. If the Democratic Party actually gave a damn about people, if they gave a crap at all. Why not start there? Oh, yeah, he, yeah, that the thing got totally uh, screwed up at the first. And then he talked about uh, policy. Oh, he's totally getting my vote. People don't vote for him. Man, they clearly hate America. How about sharing some of these policy conversations in a way that would make it interesting? How about you say, discussing honestly what he said? Now, you say to me, Tony, people don't listen to that. They only do what they do. I get it. They all want to claim that Ron DeSantis is banning books. And he discussed that. So the whole book ban thing is a hoax. There's not been a single book banned in the state of Florida. You can go buy or or use whatever book you want. 
What we have done is empowered parents with the ability to review the curriculum, to know what books are being used in school, and then to ensure that those books match state standards and are age and developmentally appropriate. So for example, uh, parents have flagged books in schools that, uh, for example, teach middle school kids how to use sex apps uh, that provide graphic depictions of sex acts and sex toys for people as young as fifth grade. And so clearly that is not appropriate uh, to be in a middle school classroom. And so parents object and, and the schools take them out. Um, I did a press conference that we called Exposing the Book Ban Hoax. And before I had the parents come up, before I spoke, I just played the video that had the images of the books that the parents had objected being in their kids' classroom. And the local news had to cut the feed because they said it was too graphic. Well, if it's too graphic for the six o'clock news, how is it okay for a sixth grader or a fifth grader? And so nothing's being banned. They're basically ensuring that we make curation choices uh, that are consistent with state standards. And on the... So we now have an understanding, as we've discussed it many times, parents saying that a book should not be uh, presented to an eighth grader that shows cartoon depictions of anal sex. It's different than a book being banned. And so when discussing this and they scream, oh, he just bans books, the response is, why do you want an eight-year-old seeing cartoon depictions of anal sex, you groomer? Now, can you say that? I think you can. I, when it first got discussed, was opposed to the concept or, or the term groomer. Not that it didn't fit some people, but as an overarching term, I like conversation. Oh, if we have to bring people down to reality, well, then that's what we got to do. And if you want to show an eight-year-old cartoon depictions of anal sex, which, by the way, I believe is the maximum I'm allowed to say that on the radio, well, then I can call that person a groomer. And when you see people like the ACLU or others okay with this and actually wanting this, you got to call those people what they are, which are weirdos. We would, I wouldn't let you near my kids. What are you, nuts? And then you got to run for school board. And then you got to vote for school board. And then you got to throw out the people who think it's okay to show that book to your kid, to an eight-year-old, not an 18-year-old, an eight-year-old, because that person is weird, and I wouldn't leave them alone with my kid for five minutes. And that's what you got to tell them. I wouldn't leave you alone with my kid for five minutes. You can't be trusted. You're weird. And if you call them groomers, you call them groomers. Once you hear that conversation, who's on the right side of history? Don't you love that expression? The right side of, the history, of history. Political left does that all the time. The right side of history. You got to be on the right side of history. You're on the side of genital mutilation of children, you freak weirdo. Stand it up. In all of these things where DeSantis is discussing policy and we should discuss the policy, and by the way, we can agree or disagree with him on the policies. Remember that the person you're talking to, this is the most important part, isn't the progressive or the leftist who hates you, who wants to say you're banning books. It's to the person over to the side who's undecided. It's to the person in the middle who never heard it explained the way you're explaining it. Like a rational, normal person. You see it as the combative. Tony, it doesn't pay to say it like this. Tony, it doesn't pay to say it like that. Of course it does, 
because the person you're trying to reach isn't the person who has dyed their hair pink and is singing their abortion. It's the soccer mom in Name Your Suburb, Indiana, or Pennsylvania, or Wisconsin, who never once heard the truth because all they get is the view in CNN. And just that little bit provides the opportunity. You can call me naive if you want, but I'm talking about grabbing people where they live and where you have the opportunity to grab them is when somebody else might be screaming at you and you're just laying it out as it is. The left is going to scream, oh, he couldn't even do anything on Twitter. There was two hours of policy conversation. Democrats don't bring policy. They bring emotional freakouts and supportive of the abusing of children. I think you can win the fight, guys. I know it. I'm Tony Katz. The IRS throwing the DOJ under the bus. And it's a reminder that thank goodness for Mitch McConnell. That's right. I said it. Thank goodness for Mitch McConnell. Uh, his friends, uh, that, that, that's, that's you and me. His friends uh, call him Cocaine Mitch. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, Cocaine Mitch, right there. I love cocaine! That's him. Uh, he kept Merrick Garland off the Supreme Court. Because Merrick Garland is now the Attorney General. And the DOJ removed the whistleblower at the IRS from the probe into Hunter Biden and the questions about his taxes. The IRS confirmed it. The commissioner, Daniel Werfel, saying, and I'm, and I'm quoting here, in a letter to House Ways and Means, to the committee, to the chair, Jason Smith, and the ranking member, Democrat Richard Neal, I want to state unequivocally that I have not intervened and will not intervene in any way that would impact the status of any whistleblower. The IRS whistleblower you reference alleges that the change in their work assignment came at the direction of the Department of Justice as a general matter and not in reference to any specific case. I believe it is important to emphasize that in any matter involving federal judicial proceedings, the IRS follows the direction of the Justice Department. And that's that. You moved somebody off of an investigation into Hunter because you don't want Hunter investigated. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. Let me say it again. Thank goodness. Mitch McConnell I love kept Merrick Garland off the court. We are all better off. Your children and grandchildren are better off. Don't forget it. Now, with DeSantis announcing yesterday, that was the big news. But we forget that Robert F. Kennedy is running against Joe Biden, polling at 19%. Me, I sat down with the man one-on-one. -on -one. Is Robert F. Kennedy a conservative? And who would he rather face, Trump or DeSantis? That's coming up. I'm Tony Katz.
Sometimes you gotta ask yourself, what is it about the other side that you need to know? What is it that they're actually saying? And in the case of Robert F. Kennedy Jr., what we hear about is that man is strong on COVID. You gotta know the total man. You gotta understand the COVID position and how it relates to other positions. Guys, welcome to the show. Good to be with you. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. uh, right there. Let's start with the, the basics. You're challenging the sitting president of the United States for the nomination. That's not an everyday thing. Why are you doing it? I just became convinced that our country is on a bad track and my political party has kind of gone off the rails. Our party, uh, the Democratic Party, has become a party of war, party of censorship, uh, the party of fear, the party of uh, the neocons, you know, crafting our foreign policy and Wall Street big shots crafting our domestic uh, policies. And it's, I don't think it's good for our country. And I think we've uh, we've abandoned a lot of the principles that, you know, listen, I, I, want, I have seven kids. I want my kids to grow up the way that I did, proud to be an American. I want America to be wielding moral authority around the world, people around the world want American leadership, they don't want bullying and they know the difference. And, I, you know, I think we should go back to uh, uh, the role that we used to play. What? How would you describe that? What is the role we used to play well, that I, we no longer I, play? I mean, I think we, in foreign policy, I think we, you know, um, when you know, when I was a kid, when I was six years old, I was I attended my uncle's inauguration three days before on my birthday, Dwight Eisenhower, who was the outgoing president, gave the most, probably what is today should be regarded as the most important speech in American history, where he warned Americans against the rise, the emergence of a military industrial complex that would turn America into an imperium abroad and a surveillance state at home, that it would corrode and erode and overwhelm our democracy. My uncle came in, immediately was faced with that cabal, Two months into office, they lied to him and talked him into the pigs invasion. And in the middle of that, he came out of his office and he said, I want to shatter the CIA into a thousand pieces and scatter it to the wind. And he became, he realized at that point that the intelligence apparatus and the military, you know, at that point, the Joint Chiefs, um, that the function and particularly of the intelligence agencies was to provide America with a constant pipeline of new wars to feed the military industrial complex. And um, and he spent the thousand days that he was in office at odds with the, with the military brass and the intelligence agencies. He fired the top three people at CIA and tried to replace them with people who are more interested in America's national security and the moral authority of our country. But the, uh, the agency maintained its its culture. And today, you know, we've spent since uh, since 2001, since the Iraq war, we've spent $8.1 trillion on foreign wars that have done nothing good for the United States. I don't I don't disagree. Uh, and for a lot of people who are unfamiliar with their politics, they're going to say a guy who wants to stay out of foreign wars. That sounds very much like President Trump. That's what they're going to say. A guy, we didn't do this. We didn't do that. President Trump says that often. But going back to President Biden quickly, 
How do you, what is the strategy to beat President Biden in a primary, considering that the Democratic Party has stated that no debates. We heard this from Simone Sanders on MSNBC not too, not too long ago. No debates, so no chance for you to sh- engage in this conversation. So what do you think the the move point, the pivot point is for Democrats? Well, what are you asking? Are you asking what is my kind of path to victory? Correct. Well, I would I think that there, you know, it's unfortunate that the president is not going to debate. I think it you know, this is a time in our nation's history when so many people are feeling like the system is rigged against them and that the electoral system is also rigged. And the Democratic Party ought to be at the spear tip of convincing Americans that, you know, of, of creating an election that's a template for democracy, where there's retail politics, where real debate. And that we're not like the Soviet Union, where the party picks the, you know, picks the candidates. <laughs> um, but... I still think that there are ways around that. I mean, I've spent many years, almost 18 years, being censored by the mainstream media. And particularly the last three years, a blanket sort of wall-to-wall censorship. But we figured out ways uh, around that. We've figured out ways to communicate with people that are not dependent on the mainstream media. And, and some of that is, you know, my when my uncle ran Tony in 1960, Television was a new invention, and he understood that it was going to uh, it was going to decide the presidential elections. And he took advantage of that. And I think in, in 2016, uh, Twitter served kind of the same, you know, played a critical role in that election. Uh, Twitter is continues to do that today. The 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 ways to connect to people certainly do matter. And of course, being in this business and being in, on the side of the aisle that I'm, I'm at, paying attention to how text does silence people has been a big story. And watching Elon Musk free uh, at least Twitter in that regard has been unbelievably helpful. And we see mainstream media be very angry uh, about it. You have gotten a lot of media coverage, sir, talking to Robert F. Kennedy Jr., candidate for president uh, on the Democratic side. Because of your take on COVID, on COVID vaccines, and due to that take, some people view you as a conservative-minded person. Politically, that's that's not the totality of your politics. You're very, very strong on the idea of climate change not only being real, but something we have to be uh, aggressive uh, uh, about. You have made a series of statements on that. Politically, you you do remain well within that Democratic, if I could say, progressive party, not not the conservative side. But you feel definitely silenced over that your your feelings and your takes on covid. Yeah, on the climate issue, you know, I have a different take than a lot of other environmentalists. And it's been consistent over many years, which is to focus uh, because, you know, frankly, um, what I found over my many years, 40 years as an environmental advocate, that Republicans and Democrats are all environmentalists at some level. People care about, they don't want their kids to be poisoned by toxics. They want to preserve sacred places. People want to go to places to hunt, to fish, to enjoy, to, good, to enjoy the outdoors. They want to preserve our Purple Mountains majesty. And so I focused on those issues rather than climate. I mean, if you, you know, I believe that climate change is real and that it's a crisis, but I don't insist that you believe in that, you know, and I understand why a lot of people don't. 
because it's it's lines on graphs, it's studies, and, and nobody really has the capacity to, to read or assess. And so I'm not going to insist that people believe in that. There are plenty of reasons to end our addiction to oil and coal that have nothing to do with climate, that have to do with national security, that have to do with making our children healthy, that have to do with preserving sacred places. You know, we're cutting down the Appalachian Mountains. 500 biggest peaks on the Appalachian Mountains have been leveled. Um, we, have, we have filled 2,200 miles of streams in eastern Kentucky, West Virginia. Nobody wants that. Uh, the waters are poisoned in those states. Um, we've poisoned every freshwater fish in North America with mercury. Uh, the And that's coming from coal-burning power plants. The acid rain from those plants has uh, has deforested the high peaks of the Appalachian from Georgia to northern Quebec and has sterilized those lakes. And, you know, and on and on, there's half a trillion dollars of healthcare costs in this country, pulmonary, respiratory, uh, 60,000 deaths, millions and millions of asthma attacks that come from ozone in particulate. So there are better ways to, uh, to, to fuel our economy and more efficient ways and cheaper ways. And what I say is that we should um, we should rely on free markets. We should end the subsidies to carbon and to everybody else, and that we should let the markets describe, decide. So I, I think that's a little bit different than maybe where you were uh, in in the past with with some of the the climate conversation. Uh, but certainly, um, do you, do you see yourself as a free market guy? And and I mean, I know that you brought just brought on former Congressman Dennis Kucinich. Uh, to run the campaign as your campaign manager. And when we go back to the days of of the Obamacare conversations and things like that, he was to the left of Barack Obama. So, you know, uh, that choice of campaign manager is is a discussion of uh, politics and beliefs. I just want to make sure we understand where you are. Do you feel that that your beliefs have changed or do you believe that you're still a Democrat in the in the vein of Democrats, whether we're talking about uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan or, or someone like like that, and and that it is the party that has gone further left than you would be okay with. I am a Kennedy Democrat. I'm a traditional Kennedy Democrat. I don't think my general views have changed, you know, at all about. Uh, you know, about specific things, they change. If I see facts that are different, I'm going to change my opinion. But, you know, my views, my sympathies, my general philosophy and approach to politics is the same as uh, it, it's been consistent my whole life. I've always believed in the free market. And I've always said for 40 years, you can go back and look at my speeches from the 1980s. And I was saying the most important thing that we can do for the environment is to have real free market capitalism, which we do not have in this country. We have corporate crony capitalism. And a, tr a true free market would uh, is the enemy. Uh, it, a true free market would, would give us efficiency. And efficiency is the elimination of waste. And pollution is waste. And a true free, mar a true free market would require us to properly value our natural resources. And it's the undervaluation of those resources that causes us to use them wisely. And in a true free market, you can't make yourself rich without making your neighbors rich and without enriching your community. But what polluters do is they make themselves rich by making everybody else poor. You show me a polluter, I'll show you a subsidy. I'll show you a fat cat. 
using political clout to escape the discipline of the free market and force the public to pay his production costs. If we're going to stick in this climate conversation, sir, talking to Robert F. Kennedy Jr., candidate for president on the Democratic ticket, give me a conversation about climate, about the environment, where you differ from Joe Biden, because if we were to talk about Green New Deal, you're somebody who has supported that concept, the concept of the Green New Deal. That seems to be now part and parcel of where the Democratic Party is today. Give me something concrete that is different than where Joe Biden is right now. Well, my approach is different. My approach, as I say, is a market-based approach. Right now, it costs about $3.2 billion to build a gigawatt, a one-gigawatt coal plant. It costs a, uh, to build a solar plant costs $1 billion. And then it's free energy forever. And the problem is the blockade to uh, to coal to to more efficient energy sources, variable and you know and renewable energy sources is, is mainly uh, the grid. Is we do not have a grid that can get those those electrons to market. So almost every farmer in North Dakota wants to put wind turbines in, on his property because a a cornfield without a wind turbine is worth about $800 with a wind turbine it's worth $3,000 or $3,200 so everybody wants to do it the problem and and there's huge amounts of capital are waiting around the borders of North Dakota which is the windiest place in North America and one of the windiest in the world outside of Antarctica everybody wants to finance that the problem is you can't get those electrons to market and we need to build out the grid system and create a marketplace that turns every American into an energy entrepreneur, every home into a power plant. I I don't like that. I do not like the top-down approach to environmental um, uh, to the to, to uh, climate. And I really turned against that during the COVID crisis because I saw how that crisis was manipulated. Mm-hmm. I Davos Billionaires Boys Club and Bill Gates and others. To use that crisis as a pretext for clamping down totalitarian controls. And I see that the same thing is happening with climate, that it is being misused. It's a real crisis, but it is being misused by uh, by the same cabal. Is, is, is that the representative Ocasio-Cortez's? Is that the Senator Dick Durbin's? Who is well, that? I, I think those people are just, are you know, are uh, some of the things that they're doing are part of an agenda by people who are probably much more, I would regard as much more powerful than them. people in the, um, you know, the, as I say, the kind of World Economic Forum, the intelligence agencies, people who are, um, who are more interested in control than they are in actually preserving the, you know, you know, the, the uh, infrastructure of our ecosystems. There are a series of questions that I want to ask you, but I, I, I promise to keep the time and to keep you on schedule. So we're going to have to have you back. That's got to happen because we, I want to dig in more. But I, I must ask uh, Governor Ron DeSantis. Uh, he uh, announced yesterday, let's say you get the nomination. The Democratic Party says they they want uh, four more years of Kennedy. Uh, in 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 the White House, uh, who would you rather face, Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis? I think, uh, I mean, my the poll numbers that I have right now um, show me doing much better against Ron DeSantis. Um, so I, you know, I guess from a strategic point of view, that it would be better for me to face him. Uh, but I do well against both of them. So 
I'm, I'm, uh, and this I'm, campaign I'm, is, you know, I, I mean, the thing is with Donald Trump, I'm in a very good position to hold him responsible for something that nobody else is holding him responsible for, which is the lockdowns. Lockdowns were the biggest economic catastrophe in American history, and they were Donald Trump's lockdowns. It cost our country $16 trillion. They engineered a $4 trillion shift in wealth from the middle class in this country to the super rich. He closed down 3.3 million businesses and, you know, shifted all of that wealth to Amazon and, you know, to the people who were then collaborating with the White House to censor people like me who were criticizing the lockdowns. And it was a war on the poor and the war on the middle class in this country in every way. And, you know, I would love to have a debate in front of the American people about that with, you know, with uh, President Trump. Robert F. Kennedy Jr., thank you so much for being here. More is coming up. I'm Tony Katz. The Republicans continue to govern in a way that is clueless, callous, and with great contempt, and I would say godless because faith without works is dead. That's Representative uh, Presley lecturing to you. Representative Ayanna Presley of Massachusetts wanting you to know uh, that uh, the Republican Party is clueless, callous, and godless. That's right. The Republican Party is godless, says the aligned communist or communist-aligned Democrat. Like there's a difference. I'm Tony Katz.